1 Corinthians chapter 4. All right, it's, it's beans and cornbread time. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we got a lot to cover. I'm going to get you out on time, uh, but I'll just have to make sure we don't do too much fluff in this. If you're taking notes, I'm going to try to give you some clear outlines, some clear things to talk about today. Not going to be able to cover every verse in the whole chapter in detail. So let me just walk through it. We're going to read it. After we read the chapter, I want to back up and I want to hit the main portion. And I think there's one spiritual lesson in here that personally I've had a hard time learning in life that I want to focus on. Hopefully that you can learn it a lot earlier in life than I learned it. And that will be of great benefit if you do. First Corinthians chapter four starts off and says this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, It is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you reign as kings. You have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not only the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, verses 14 through 20, as we look at those through 21, talk about Paul softening his message. And we're not, we're not going to go back through those in great detail. So I want to just mention them to you now. He says he doesn't write so that you would be shamed. You all have been there, right? When dad showed up or mom showed up and said, you know, give me that hug in front of that girl or that guy that you really liked or embarrassed you thoroughly by showing baby pictures 
maybe when you were in the bathtub without any clothes on or anything, and they have shamed you, and you have sat there and thought, why do you shame me like this? Well, Paul softens his message here at the end and says, I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to admonish you. Why do we admonish? We admonish because we understand that if we don't admonish, that there's going to be a judgment that takes place. And so he softens his message by saying, you have countless guides. It's murios, is the word there. You have 10,000 guides. Well, that's an exaggeration just to mean you can have infinite number of guides or the guides are the ones who teach you in the home, but you only have one father. You have very few fathers. And he became your father through Christ Jesus and the gospel. Now, let me say before I back up and start walking through this, I hope all of you become a father to somebody spiritually through the gospel, but you have to share the gospel in order to become a father to somebody through the gospel. And here he's saying he became the father. He sent to them, he talks about some who are arrogant. Arrogant here is the exact same word as puffed up earlier. And so we'll come back and hit that. And then he tells them that as a father, I can come to you in one of two ways. I can come to you with the stick or the carrot. I can come to you with the rod or I can come to you with a spirit of gentleness. And that's how he softens his message and gives them the ultimatum as he transitions out of this section of 1 Corinthians. Where I want us to focus our time is backing up in chapter 4, looking at verse 1. When we look at verse 1, what we first see are the characteristics. So look at what it says here. This is how one should regard us. And we see three characteristics. The first one is as servants of Christ. So Paul is saying here that he is a servant of Christ. And the actual word here in the Greek tells us that he means an under rower. The original context of this word, if you remember the old ships that you would have and you would have the people who would row and they were row on the bottom level and all of them were just rowing at that bottom level, he says that we are servants of Christ, we are the under rowers. Now that under rower in that Greek context eventually came to mean someone who worked in the house, a household worker and somebody who was busy in the house context. So it didn't necessarily carry that connotation all the way forward, but that was its origin. You think about those people who were rowing at the very bottom of the boat. Well, which one of them was greater than another? They were all equally the least, right? They had the worst possible job in the worst possible spot, and they were at the very bottom. They were at the lowest part. They were servants of Christ. They were at the very bottom of the ship, and that's who they were. And he transitions here from saying that he was an under rower, a servant of Christ, and then he says he was a steward of the mysteries of God. What is a steward? A steward is a steward of a house. That's what he's talking about here. And so he carries that word meaning forward from that previous word. He transitions it here into steward, and it means that he is supposed to be responsible to the owner, but over some of the other workers, and so that they report to him, and so he's a steward. And then when he says that he's a steward of the mysteries of God, it's not just that he's a steward, but it says in verse 2 that moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or that they be found faithful. Now, here's what he's saying. All through 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, He's talked about the pride. He's talked about the knowledge. He's talked about being puffed up. He's talked about how they've picked Paul. They've picked Apollos. They've picked Peter. And they've had these divisions. And he says, you've got the entire picture wrong. You are missing everything. It's not that we're to be held up on pedestals. It's not that we're to be separated or to cause division in the church. It's that you're to look at us as apostles. You're to look at ministers of the gospel. And you're to see that ministry as one of a servant of Christ, as a steward of the mysteries of God, and one that is supposed to be found trustworthy or faithful to God, and that's all you're supposed to see your leaders as. And so here's an application. Never put a leader up on a pedestal too high. Only Jesus goes up on the pedestal. Everybody else is just a fellow servant with Christ, a fellow steward of the household, a fellow person who's supposed to be faithful to God. 
And here in this context, you have these leaders of this Corinthian church. And they're wanting to lead. And they're saying, some of them, I want to lead, but I want to be a Paul. I want to lead, but I want to be of Apollos. I want to lead, but I'm going to be a Peter. And then some really spiritual ones. I'm going to lead, I'm going to be of Jesus. They're all seeking how to lead. And so Paul is circling back around and he says, you want to lead? Here's how you lead. You lead by being a servant of God. You lead by being a steward of the mysteries of God. You lead by being faithful to God. You want to lead and be a Christian leader in life, in church, in business, in service. You lead by understanding that that leadership is to be displayed through service to God. That's what he says here. A servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, being found trustworthy. Three characteristics that he gave you there. Servant, steward, faithful, trustworthy. He transitions from that then into the judgment. And he looks here in verse three, but with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Now here you could take this a couple of ways. If you're the Corinthians and Paul comes up to you and he says, you know, frankly, I don't care what you think about me. That's a pretty negative context, right? That's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is, I don't care as much what you think about me as I do what Jesus thinks about me or what God thinks about me. And so as a leader, there are going to be times in your life you're going to have to make decisions and everybody's not going to understand all of those decisions. They're not going to know all the information that went into those decisions, but you can't worry about what other people think nearly as much as you worry about what God thinks. And you've got to make sure that you're trying to be faithful to God and not faithful to other people and to their perceptions of you. It's the politicians that put out the opinion poll. It's the politicians that say, I have to please everybody. As servants of Christ, we have an audience of one. We have one master that we serve and that we have to be faithful to. And here he's saying, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court. And here he's got a play on words where he's basically saying by any human day. And you'll remember back in chapter three, verse 13, where we looked at it and it said, when the day approaches, God will disclose it. And so he's got this contrast here between the day of Christ, when all of our actions, all of our motives, all that we've done is gonna be revealed and the day of a human day where a human would pass judgment on us. He says, that's a small thing. And then he transitions here and watch this. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. And here's a message I think we all need to hear. I don't even judge myself. Why not? Because I'm not even sure what my own motives are sometimes. I may think I'm doing right, and I may actually have selfish motivations in the things that I'm doing that may be good. And so Paul says, I don't have anything in my conscience that tells me I'm doing something wrong, but I don't even trust my own conscience to judge myself because I know that my own conscience has fallen. I know that I am affected by sinful core in every way possible and that I cannot even judge myself accurately. And so then he goes to verse four and he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted or I have not been justified for it is the Lord who judges me. And this is where he talks about not worried about others, not worried about himself, but he's worried about the Lord's judgment. And it says in verse five, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. There's a good lesson for us. Be careful that we don't judge others before the time. We can't know their motives. We can't know their hearts. We can see their fruit, but we need to be cautious as we look at others and we start applying motives or intentions to what they're doing as we're judging people and we don't have all the information. He says, do not judge before the time, before the Lord comes. And look at what it says here. 
the Lord who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, the Lord who will disclose the purposes of the heart, the motivation. And it is the Lord then that each one will receive his commendation from God. And so what's the Lord going to do on the day of judgment? He's going to bring to light the things that nobody else sees. He's going to bring forward the motivations of our heart, our internal motivations for why we have done the things we have done to see if it's pure. Those things will become light. And then he's going to reward each one with the commendation from God. And that's the judgment. That's what the Lord does and that's what the Lord gives. And here we move in verse six to the main point of what I want us to focus on, which is the contrast. It's the contrast between the pride of the Corinthians Symbolized there in the words puffed up and the words arrogant twice and the humility displayed by the apostle Paul and the gospel. Verse six, he says, I have applied all these things. Now, what does he mean these things? Everything he's talked about previously. He's applied it all and he's applied it all to himself and to Apollos for your benefit. So what he did is instead of walking in and say, you got a problem, you got a problem and you got a problem and naming those people, he said, let's talk about me and let's talk about Apollos and let's talk about Peter and we'll bring it up in that way so that it's an easier pill for you to swallow. So he's giving them good words of admonishing them, but as he's doing so, he's making it easier for them to swallow this. He's confronting them, but he's doing so with kindness so that they can accept what he's saying and it's not gonna be as difficult on them to change. And so he doesn't point out the individuals in the specific congregation, although he tells them, I'm coming and I'm going to see if it's just talk or if it's talk and power. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to to go beyond what is written. Now, what is written there is an interesting saying. Paul uses that word 30 times or so in his writings. Every time he uses that word is introducing an Old Testament quote. We've encountered a lot of those as we've gone through 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, where he would say, for it is written, he would point back to an Old Testament quotation he's using. This is the only place where he uses for it is written and he doesn't go back to an Old Testament quote. And so what is he saying here? I think the best interpretation is not to think this was some parable like saying when you drive, keep it between the lines. It's not some modern saying like we would tell our children when you're tracing letters to to follow and don't go above the line or below the line, but stay on the dotted line as you're learning to write your letters. I don't think that's the best interpretation, although some take that. I think the best interpretation is to see what he's done previously in the letter and to look at this being a reference back to Old Testament scriptures to saying to them, don't go beyond what is written in the Old Testament, beyond all of the quotes that we've already given you. Don't go beyond that so that none of you may be puffed up. Now, what quotes has he given us? He's given us quotes about our own intellect and about our own mind and about worldly wisdom causing us to be puffed up against godly knowledge. He's given us Old Testament quotes about being too prideful or too arrogant in our own strength or in our own nobility to be humble before the gospel. And so here, I think what he's saying is, remember all those quotes I just gave you? Because remember, they read the letter all at one time. He's pointing back to all of those and he's saying, remember those? You remember those so that you don't become puffed up in favor of one against another. And then here we see three questions. After the three questions, we're going to see three exclamations or three statements that will come into play as well. So let's look at the three questions. While you're looking at these three questions, I want you to think about this fact. Anybody in the room here struggle with pride? We got a bunch of honest people in here. If you didn't raise your hand, you're too prideful about your humility and so you should have raised your hand. Pride is the only sickness that makes everybody around you ill except yourself, right? 
we've seen it. We see it all the time. In fact, we do it all the time. Can I be honest with you as we walk through this section and just tell you that pride has been something that's been a struggle in my own personal life? And if I had learned these lessons a whole lot sooner, my life would have been a whole lot easier. There are sports teams where pride has ripped them apart. There are musical groups where pride has ripped them apart. There's friendships that pride has ripped apart. There are relationships that pride has ripped apart. And we're taught from a very early age to be prideful. I'm reminded of my own children. Uh, Rachel's not here today, so I can talk about her. She won't watch this online. She's got better things to do. And so, but don't you tell her I said it. Uh, we're, we're at the house the other day, and she runs and jumps up three steps. In our house, we've got three steps that goes from one room to another. She jumps up three steps, and she looks, and she goes, Watch me, Daddy. I'm good. She jumps up three steps. Isn't that awesome? Now, what are you thinking? Every last one of us in this room could jump up three steps pretty much, right? But from a very early age, kids are programmed with, watch me, daddy, I'm good. We start building that little sense. And then what do we do? Well, we grow up in this little relationship thing we call dating, right? And when it's time to date, do you ever go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I'd... I'd really like to take you out, but I just want you to know ahead of time that I stink late at nights because, you know, I have this body odor issue that I'm working on, and I'm really not that smart. I just put up a good front, and some people think they're funny, but I'm really funny, and they're not, and I don't like them at all, and, you know, I think you're cute, but your hair is really messed up on this one side right here. Can I fix that for you? And I've got this one toe, and it's... I won't go any further. We'll stop. Is that how you go up and ask a girl out on a date? No. How do you go up and ask them out on a date? Hey, you, you know, you know, I hope you know me by now. I hope I'm not that guy. And so I'm a pretty cool guy. You know, I've, I've got the nice car. I've got a plan for life. You know, my, my game plan and vision for life is not to have a 31 on Xbox Halo Sniper. And so, you know, I... I've got, I've got my act together and I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy and I've got a good sense of humor and a good personality and funny and, and I, I, want to, I want to make sure that you're treated well and respected. We put our best foot forward, right? So here's a little comma. If somebody that you're investigating a relationship with or even in a relationship with has a whole lot of warts that you can't put up with now, they're not gonna get better in life. You're not gonna change them. They're putting the very best foot forward. You go past that relationship, what do you do next? Your resume. How many of you have your resume ready? You already got it done. Okay. Those are all the seniors in the room, right? When you put your resume out, what do you say? Well, I was almost fired from this job, but I managed to resign before they got rid of me. (laughs) Is that what you do? Well, I quit working for this summer because, oh, let's be honest. I wanted to go hang out at the beach for three months with my friends. Because I really value playing a lot more than I value hard work. Is that, is that what's on your resume? It's not what we're taught, is it? We're taught to put our best foot forward. We're taught to exalt ourselves. We're taught to talk good about ourselves. And look at what Paul says here. He asked them three questions I want us all to ask ourselves today. He says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? Basically what he's asking is what makes one of you better than another? And this is a good question. Why do you think you're better than somebody else? 
And at the root cause of this, once we begin to think we're better than somebody else, it's pretty easy to go from that step of thinking I'm better than somebody else to devaluing somebody else, to talking bad about somebody else, to placing them in a category that's beneath me or below me. And that turns into treating them like a possession. And that ultimately turns into a root and to a lot of different evils that exist in our society when we think we're better than somebody else. You think about it all throughout history. Racism as it has taken place against any particular society or people or nationality occurs when we think we're better than somebody else. Even the sex trade happens when we think we're better and we can use somebody else for our gain and that they are beneath us and all of these things take place. And he asked them this question, what makes you think you're better than somebody else? And then the next question follows right upon it. What do you have that you did not receive? There's a good question to ponder. What do you have that you didn't receive? All right, who's my best basketball player in the room? Stand up, where are you? They're skipping chapel today, we caught them, all right. Nobody wants to stand up. Why are you a good basketball player? God gave you height, God gave you eye-hand coordination, God gave you athletic ability, God gave you the skill to understand the game. Best volleyball player in the room. Why are you the best volleyball player? God gave you height, God gave you the ability to jump well or be quick and get to the balls. God gave you the ability to spike the ball at 158,000 miles per hour, which is what scares me. What makes you the best musician in the room? God gave you an ear for music. He gave you the ability to play. He gave you the coordination. What makes you the most intelligent person in the room? God gave you the intellect. What puts you in this room? God created you, God gives you breath, God sustains you, God gives you life. God is the source of your origin, he's the source of your present, and he's the source of your future. So when Paul asked them, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. I don't have anything about me that I didn't receive. I used to fight in karate. But if you look at me, I'm in a funny design because I wear a 36-inch inseam on my pants And I have a 36, 37 inch reach with my sleeves, which means I have a really short torso, which makes me look really goofy if I wear tucked in shirts and blue jeans or something like that. And so that's one reason I wear a coat is to hide how long my legs are and how short my torso is, built entirely different than many of you. I've got the wingspan of like a 6'4 guy, which means that some people think I'm a monkey or something weird like that. But it's really good for fighting because you can reach out and touch somebody and your target zone is a lot smaller than theirs is. So do you get boastful in the things that you do well or do you say, God, thank you for what you have made or what you have given and you give the glory back to him because he's designed you to do certain things. And then the third question then, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do we get arrogant and prideful and talk about how great we are, how good looking we are? Who have you changed your looks You had them. God gave them to you. Who have you changed your intellect? You had it. God gave it to you. You may have worked hard to develop it, but you don't take that credit to yourself because that's stealing glory from God. You give the glory back to him and you give thanks to him. And he turns those three questions then into three different statements. Already, and these are sarcastic, by the way. He doesn't mean this, but he says, already you have all you want, exclamation point. Already you have become rich, exclamation point. Without us, you have become kings, exclamation point. And so here he's using the argument to absurdity to say, you're prideful, you're arrogant, you're boasting. And then look at the contrast as he continues. And would that you did reign so that we could reign with you. 
For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sent us to death. Here's the word picture here. He's talking about a conquered group of people and after they've been conquered, they're brought in as the very last and the generals march in after they've conquered everybody and they go to the triumph in the gladiatorial circle and they circle around and they walk and then they bring in the prisoners at the very end and at the very end, here are the prisoners that are gonna be fed to the lions or those who are gonna be fed and told to fight each other until death and they're the very least, they're the very last. They are the conquered men. They are the lowest of the low and that's where Paul says, that's what we are, sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. And the word spectacle here, if you transliterate it, is where do we get our word theater from? And so he's saying to them, just as you know in the theater, you're up in front of everybody, everybody's watching. So he's given this word picture of we are the very last, we are the very least, we are the ones brought in to die in front of the whole world looking on. We are a spectacle to the world, angels and men. Now, here by angels, we can assume that Paul means the good angels because he usually uses principalities and powers when he talks about the bad angels. And so he says, we are fools for Christ's sakes, but you're wise. You see the contrast? We're fools, but you're wise. And that reminds us back to chapter one and chapter two where he told us to become a fool for Christ's sake as well. We are weak, but you are strong. Remember back in chapter one and chapter two where he made mention of that as well. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. Remember back in chapter one and chapter two where he talked about taking the lowly things of this world to confound the wise? And then he says in verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, six different verbs, poorly dressed, buffeted. Now, by the way, buffeted doesn't mean we went to the buffet multiple times at Chuck's. Buffeted means to pound with the fist over and over It means to be mistreated or to abuse, to be beaten. We are buffeted and homeless. And here homeless doesn't necessarily mean he's out on the street in the cold, but it means he doesn't have a roof that he can call his own. He is a traveling missionary who stays in under people's roofs. And we labor and we work with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and here's what I want you to focus and take home. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth the refuse of all things. How many of you want to sign up to be the scum of the earth? For Jesus' sake. The refuse of the world. Somebody ask you, what do you want to do for a living? I want to be scum of the earth. Okay. Why? What is scum of the earth? Two word pictures he gives here. Sweeping up the dirt off the floor. Scum of the earth. Scraping off of dishes, the refuse. So what's your mental image? Paul's saying here, same place he started. We're servants, we're stewards, we're trustworthy or faithful to God. Here's what we are. We're scum of the earth. We're the refuse of the world. Scrape stuff off of plates and you put it in what? You've been at Chuck's. Those holes. And if you look down into one of those holes, what do you see? It's pretty disgusting, isn't it? That's what that last word means, is the scrapings off of the plates. So Paul is saying to us that our proper mentality of ourselves is to consider ourselves as Chuck's dish pit. Not the workers, just the food. Not those who are doing a good job. The scrapings off of the plate. How many of you want to be the scrapings off of the plate? Isn't that tough? It's a hard pill for us to swallow. 
But when we think about certain verses, like Second Chronicles 26, 16, and 17, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Proverbs eight thirteen: fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate says the Lord. Proverbs eleven twelve. when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Isaiah two eleven. the haughty looks of man may be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Daniel five twenty. even when the most powerful king in the world, when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and glory was taken from him and he ate grass in the field like a cow would do or an oxen would do. Obadiah 1.3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the cleft of the rock of your lofty dwelling, who says in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? There are more that I could give you, but for the sake of time, let me just give you these. How do we not be prideful? Because let's face it, we all struggle with it. Every time academicians write a new book, do a presentation, teach a lecture, do something good, we have a temptation then to become prideful in what we do, and so do you. First, here's point number one. We remember that only God is self-existent. We're dependent on God for our beginning, our being, and our future. Number two, we remember that any gift we have comes from God, and those gifts carry responsibility to use them well. Three, we remember that when we take the glory, when we boast, when we become prideful, we are stealing glory from God and we place ourselves in opposition to God. Number four, we remember that we are depraved sinners and it is our sin that caused Jesus to pay our penalty on the cross and that's who we are. Finally, I would say to you, think on Philippians chapter two. It says, do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Having the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count it equality a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, and he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even the death of the cross, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the lesson I hope you get from this today. When you're tempted to be proud, don't be. Think about who we really are and be humble. So many discussions with my wife, so many discussions with friends throughout the years, so many times when I've said things that have come out in a haughty spirit that I can't take back, that I can't retract. I want you to learn from that lesson and not make those same mistakes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, today I do pray that you would help convict us in areas where we struggle with pride. Father, whether it be in physical abilities, whether it be in intellectual abilities, whether it be in something as superficial as our looks, I pray that you would help us not to be prideful, boastful, and arrogant against you. God, even if we're boastful in our humility or our spiritualness, Lord, help us not to be prideful in any way, but help us just to have a true humility of recognizing who we are and how great you are. And help us to give you the glory. Lord, I pray this not just for the students, but for the staff, for the faculty, for myself, for all of those who are here with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.